This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, this is Ben Singer. I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern in pulmonary and critical care and an associate editor for the Red Journal. I'm Navdeep Chandel. I'm a professor of medicine and cell biology also at Northwestern University Medical School. So Nav, you are a world-renowned expert in metabolism and I kind of want to get your thoughts about this resurgence of interest in metabolism and how it's made a comeback. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, Metabolism got re-energized sort of in the mid-90s, and I was uh, finishing graduate school uh, right around 95, 96, and I think there were some two or three key findings that came about in the 90s. Uh, So I remember, um, you're too young to remember this, Ben, but uh, (laughs) the 90s was an exciting time because you know, the, the full-blown revolution of molecular biology was here, uh, which culminated at the end of the decade with the sequencing of the human genome. Uh, many of the signal transduction pathways, TOR, AKT, um, and uh, that, you know, we're all accustomed to were being um, discovered and also all the pathways that are associated with it. And, and metabolism was sort of thought as a dead field mm-hmm. and uh, it's mm-hmm. sort of in the background. Uh, most of the 20th century we figured it all out and now it was time to figure out uh, the signal transduction mechanisms, transcription factors, epigenetic regulation. Yeah. And But I think, you know, thinking about that time, uh, what were some key findings uh, that started to capture people's attention and uh, got someone like me super excited? Yeah. And so I did my PhD on the kinetics of cytochrome C oxidase, which is a a complex in the respiratory chain. So this is just old school biochemistry. It's not that different, the experiments I did that were done in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. Um, And uh, so how we start to connect what was basically the biochemistry of the respiratory chain or the biochemistry of mitochondria to the rest of biology, Mm -hmm. I think for me at least was influenced by three findings. The first one was uh, by Zhao Dang Wang and colleagues who discovered that cytochrome C, uh, which I did, used every single day in all my experiments because it's the substrate for, the, uh, for cytochrome C oxidase. So it's classic, the cytochrome C oxidase takes electrons from cytochrome C and gives them to oxygen. Right. Right. This is part of what's called the mitochondrial respiration. Uh, but what Dong Wang and colleagues found was that if cytochrome C, which is always sitting in the intermembrane space of mitochondria, just by its location and got released into the cytoplasm, it caused apoptosis, mm-hmm. caspase-dependent cell death. Mm-hmm. And the C. elegans model of uh, cell death or apoptosis that Bob Horowitz eventually won the Nobel Prize didn't have mitochondria at all. It was simply you receive death signals and caspases get activated and there are things that are uh, keeping those caspases from being uh, activated, you know, sort of negative and positive regulators. And it was a very simplistic but elegant model that mm-hmm. Horowitz and others had made. But this was sort of weird. You had this protein in that's sitting in the intramembrane space that gets released uh, to kill you. Yeah. At the same yeah. time, this protein evolved to give you essentially respiration linked to ATP generation. So on one hand, yeah. it's day job, as we call it, is to give you energy for life. And it's night job sometimes is to kill you. Very bizarre. 
But I think overnight people got excited about this and start to think that you can't just look at mitochondria or metabolism as this uh, autonomous function in a cell that's always going, and, but it actually was dictating biology. So that was one very powerful example and it clearly had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Uh, a second one was uh, when Greg Semenza discovered mm -hmm. HIF-1. Uh, and he was sort of looking for uh, uh, transcription regulation of the EPO genes. As many of you know, that uh, humans, mammals, if you make them hypoxic, erythropoietin levels increase, and this causes an increase in red blood cells. So, but molecularly, how you go from decreasing oxygen to the induction of EPO in the kidney or the liver uh, was a mystery, and so basically discovered HIF-1, hypoxia-inducible mm -hmm. factor one. I got uh, the Lasker for this uh, this past year. Um, Laskers are sort of um, the American version mm -hmm. of the Nobel Prizes. As, but what was amazing about this finding again was, you know, people were thinking about classical signal transduction. Think of the JAK STAT pathway, uh, you know, or NF-kappa B that's linked to TNF signaling. And this had no receptors or anything. It's just simply oxygen. Yeah. Somehow a transcription mm -hmm. factor is responding to oxygen. And, and so I think the idea, again, now a metabolite is linked directly to a transcriptional uh, machinery was another exciting piece of the pie, right? And I think the third one, which comes more out of cancer metabolism, is when Chi Dang mm -hmm. observed that um, the oncogene MYC, like one of its target genes is LDH, lactate dehydrogenase. And he could show at least in colony assays, you can have a MYC-driven cancer, and if you knock down uh, or you know, use a variety of approaches to inhibit LDH, it's those, tumor, uh, those tumor colonies in vitro using sort of colony assays was a lot less, sort of uh, in vitro tumorigenicity was um, impaired. So again, now you have the most dominant oncogene, MYC, mm -hmm. connected to metabolism. You got oxygen connected to a transcriptional machinery, and you got this protein which gives you life, cytochrome C, that causes cell death. <laughs> Right, and but all of these collectively, you know, I was sort of finishing my PhD with Paul Schumacher, and then I stayed on to do a postdoc with Paul Schumacher and Craig Thompson, uh, who was really fascinated by a lot of this. Craig is a well-known uh, cancer biologist, oncologist, head of Sloan Kettering Memorial um, Hospital, and of course Paul is your editor, mm -hmm. uh, well-known for his work in hypoxia, both at the organismal level at the cellular level, and this was sort of an exciting time and. Uh, and, and during my sort of graduate school and postdoc years in the 90s, this was all sort of coming in together um, conceptually. And, off, and then um, one of my neighbors, Celeste Simon, who's now the director of the Abramson Cancer Center at Penn, the scientific director, she, was, she reported the first knockout of HIF, mm -hmm. which had a developmental phenotype, it had an angiogenic defect, uh, and this paper came out in 1997. Uh, and that really sort of solidified that HIF is an important uh, uh, regulator of biology, physiology, and pathology. And so I was lucky I had all these things going on at the same time, um, trying to make these connections of metabolism to biology in general. So when I started in 2000, by then, slowly a lot more people were definitely interested in various aspects. And now, over the last next 15, 18 years, it has just continued to 
get bigger and bigger. I would say the cancer metabolism people have really led this, and yeah. in this case, Craig Thompson deserves, deserves a lot of credit uh, just by him proposing and uh, conceptually these connections and showing in his own laboratory how these connections between metabolism and cancer mm -hmm. uh, was related uh, has sort of been the blueprint for now other communities that are in interested in metabolism including immunometabolism, stem cell metabolism, slowly there's quite a bit of work in the pulmonary field in metabolism. Right, so what are, what are those links? I mean you, you highlighted the yeah, I guess the obvious insights of metabolism into cancer biology, right. but, but how does that relate or how can that inform how we think about uh, pulmonary critical care sleep pathologies? Right, right. So I think one of the simplest ways to think about it is that a common feature of cancer and say pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary fibrosis, mm -hmm. I'll just yeah. make those links. And I'm not the first to make those links. And there's quite a few people for the past 20 years who have proposed that there is a biology underlying pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary fibrosis yeah. is that is tied into uh, a cancer-like phenotype. I think you've heard this many times, right. I'm sure, during sure. your uh, fellowship and during your training. And, and so what's the common metabolism link? Well, these are all anabolic processes, right? Mm -hmm. it, to make one cancer cell to go to two cancer cells, you need to make new lipids, new proteins, mm -hmm. new DNA, a, to deposit a lot of collagen and, and scarring that's happening in pulmonary fibrosis, you need a, to take a lot of carbons to make collagen, for example. Right. And pulmonary hypertension is, again, a hyperplasia disease similar mm -hmm. to cancer. And so what the cancer metabolism people have, have uh, figured out, part of its rediscovery, in order to grow, you need energy, and it turns out the energy comes from both the mitochondria and cancer. I um, mean, and mitochondria, in cancer, sorry, comes both from glycolysis and mitochondria. Yep. So they both contribute to the energy. The biosynthesis of macromolecules, which is making lipids, making nucleotides, making amino acids, all you have to do is go back to your Leninger book. Like, or you can buy my book, Cheap Plug, <laughs> Navigating Metabolism on Amazon. And, uh, the carbons of the glycolytic intermediates or the TCA cycle of the mitochondria both provide the building blocks for macromolecule synthesis. Yes. Is, but there's two new concepts that have emerged that are not in those books. There's one is the idea of redox balance. So it turns out that, the, that having a high anabolic state, a growth state, you burn a lot of carbons, which makes a lot of electrons, and, and that can turn into hydrogen peroxide, superoxide and hydrogen peroxide. Mm -hmm. Now, we and others have shown that they can be co-opted to activate signaling molecules, sort of pro-growth uh, molecules, including PI3 kinase, mTOR, NF-kappa B, HIF, but at the same time, you can't, sustain that kind of oxidative load without eventually dying. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out, if anything, cells that are highly proliferative or are anabolic are loaded with antioxidants. And in fact, if you just keep on giving antioxidants to cancer cells, you make cancer worse in mm -hmm. most clinical trials and in laboratory settings. Because what you're doing basically is you're allowing the cancer cells that are sitting at a high oxidative stress load, and I think this applies for pulmonary fibrosis, and I think it applies for pulmonary hypertension as well, that even though that ROS, those reactive mm -hmm. oxygen species, are driving some of the pathways for growth, but the, but the cells are right at the edge. 
Yeah. And they're being buffered yeah. constantly by endogenous antioxidant systems. So if anything, if by pumping in more antioxidants, you're making them a little bit happier. Right. Uh, like NAC, for example. Yeah. I think this is why mm -hmm. NAC has failed in mm -hmm. many clinical yeah. trials over and over and over. The biology of ROS gets more complicated because if we actually target mitochondrial-targeted antioxidants, so you prevent the ROS from being generated to begin with, then you don't get any of those pro-tumorigenic signals or those pro-anabolic signals yeah. to be activated, and the cancer doesn't grow as well, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I would predict mm -hmm. neither would pulmonary fibrosis, people have shown, or pulmonary hypertension. And so if you, uh, you know, if you have the, if you stop the ROS in the right place, it makes a difference, but it's sort of your garden variety antioxidants, mm -hmm. or especially the dietary ones, all they're doing is they're just preventing DNA damage from occurring or lipid yeah. damage from occurring. Vitamin E will do this, NAC will do this. Right. And that, if anything, is making the cells healthier. Yeah. These sort of more fit cells, for their environment. more fit yeah. in their microenvironment. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so I think that's new. And uh, probably the thing that is the most exciting for me right now and continues to be even going forward is the interconnection with all these signaling pathways that people like or all these transcription um, networks, you know, pick your favorite one, notch, beta-catenin, HIF, NF-kappa B, they all co-op metabolism, yeah. just like, like or mTOR directly phosphorylates uh, enzymes in nucleotide synthesis or lipid synthesis. So mm -hmm. signaling and transcriptional networks clearly feed into metabolic pathways. So that's quite exciting, figuring that out. More attractive is what we work on, which is can metabolism strike back yeah. on signaling and transcriptional networks. Right. That's right. So uh, in the old days, you know, meaning when I was in the 90s sort of learning about biology, the only thing that we cared about was phosphorylation <laughs> as the main post-translational modification. Mm -hmm. Today, most of us sort of focus on the new uh, uh, translation, post-translational modification, which is cysteine oxidation, mm -hmm. acetylation, and methylation, yep. right? It, and uh, especially acetylation and methylation because they feed right into chromatin, mm -hmm. which is something that you're very much uh, interested in. As you know, DNA methylation is a very powerful way of controlling um, gene expression, as is histone acetylation and methylation. And all you have to do is, again, think about it, oh gee, that's acetylation, methylation. That's metabolism. Yeah, these are these are single carbon reactions, right? It's, these are it's, single these carbon are, reactions. This is what the our understanding of metabolism is based on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I have a joke that basically the mitochondria, which is your main source of providing acetyl CoA, as well as providing alpha ketoglutarate, which runs all the demethylase reactions. Mm -hmm. All of that chromatin epigenetics is basically an output of metabolism. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a joke, but yeah. at some level, well, I really feel that way, and we're trying to sure, uh, make sure. those links, and trying to figure that biology out is quite exciting. Yeah. So, so what, what, are, what are the next steps, right? I mean, we've, we've kind of gone through a, a history of the underpinnings, this resurgence in interest in metabolism. We've kind of talked about... Uh, the interaction of uh, cancer biology and, and pulmonary biology. You touched a bit on the interaction between transcriptional control and metabolism, but what's the next frontier? Right. I mean, where, right. where, where's this all, all going in the next five, ten years? Yeah, so I think sort of in a cell culture models, we have a pretty good idea of what metabolism is doing yeah. in different conditions. We're not doing it in vivo more and more. So, mm -hmm. or I think that, and we're finding out the metabolism in vivo can be quite different than in vitro. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's very, that's a very important take home here, and uh, 
And I think there are now nice tools to probe this in vivo. But the other thing is, you know, if you just step back from a um, public health point of view and look at what are the diseases that are on the rise, autoimmunity, neurodegeneration, and certain types of cancers. Although there is a genetic component that might underlie this, the metabolic syndrome is another one, mm -hmm. I think most people are more and more comfortable with the idea that changes in diet, mm -hmm. environmental exposure, habits like smoking or lack of exercise, right? These things, and you know, maybe you're changing your microbiome, all of these things are not necessarily causing direct mutagenesis no. of your genome, right? Right. Okay. What, what they do is they change metabolism. Yeah. And that is the one common theme, right? So if you inhale pollution, the first thing you, it does is it causes mitochondria to generate more reactive oxygen mm -hmm. species, and they work as signaling molecules to release um, IL-6, which then yeah. increases sort of a more prothrombotic state, you know? If you take lots of fructose, that's, you know, yeah. that's sugary sweet stuff uh, that goes into your liver and can make a fatty liver and, you know, and sort of yeah. drive pathology. And, and you can sort of do this experiment over and over and think about what is driving in diseases. And I think many of us are excited by the idea that change in metabolism or metabolites it's, is driving those. Yeah. And the question is, what are those metabolites and how? And again, going back to this link that maybe those metabolites cause changes in epigenetics, for yeah. example, because the epigenetic enzymes all use metabolites to function, mm -hmm. and, right? And so I think, you know, there's this idea that the microbiome makes butyrate, and butyrate, uh, mm -hmm. as you know very well, is an HDAC inhibitor. Yeah, sure. All right, so there's, there are these links. They're quite right. fuzzy, right? And I think historically, you know, uh, and I hope I'm not insulting any of the people in this field, but... The field of diet and nutrition, uh, you know, has been a little phenomenological. It's been a little bit of a soft science in this field. Um, and now yeah. I think with the, in part because we didn't have great tools, but now with all the mass spec tools, we can start to think about uh, uh, how diet, nutrition, habits, lack of exercise, exercise, is how does that all integrate it into changing your metabolism, which ultimately then might be either driving the disease or can ameliorate the disease. I mean, I think the best example, people always ask me, um, you know, at dinner parties, what should I do to boost my metabolism? Yeah. <laughs> How do I live longer, healthier? I mean, let's be honest, the best thing is still exercise. Sure. Right? Yeah. Right. And what does exercise do? That's metabolism. I think right. we can all agree. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you know, how how exercise changes metabolites to cause a positive gene expression mm -hmm. profile, which can release these magical myokines, as they're called, mm -hmm. right? Muscle-derived hormones, yeah. which are good for your memory, your brain, your heart, right? I right. mean, how does that all work, yeah. right? And I think that's, that's, uh, that's learning how that all works will maybe allow us to build, ultimately, better strategies and by that, I mean drugs. I mean, yeah. the sad truth is nobody wants to exercise. Nobody wants to eat that well. Right. We all want to have our cake and live like rock stars and pop pills yep. and be done with, okay? So, so we need a molecule that's going to We need it, a right? molecule, yeah, because if you eat, you know, if you eat a, a reasonable diet and you exercise, uh, you know, a 
unless, you know, generally you do pretty well. You know that. You're sure. a doctor, yeah, right? Yeah, right. But nobody wants to do that. <laughs> so, so that leads me into the, the last question I'll ask, which is advice for uh, grad students, postdocs, fellows, assistant professors who are looking for a project centered around this area. What are the right. specific questions, the specific areas that you right. would recommend the next generation start looking at? Yeah, this is an excellent question. I think a lot about this. You know, I can just give you my own perspective of, uh, I looked around in graduate school. I mean, I was interested in mitochondria and metabolism, um, but I had an option after finishing my PhD, e either to stick with it or mm -hmm. go do something else, mm -hmm. you know, work on signal transduction pathways, yeah. which was very hot. Or my colleague, Celeste Simon, was right next door. She was doing transcription factor knockouts. Yeah, yeah she was using mouse genetics. So go down that road, you know? And, um, but everybody was doing that, right? You know, one of the predictors of long-term success is, do you have a niche? Mm -hmm. The other one is you need to know how to train people. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't work in the lab. I'm only as good as the people in my lab. Uh, but, but really having a niche early on. And so my niche wasn't going to be kinases or phosphorylation or epigenetics or transcriptional networks. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of really smart people were doing that, you know. I thought about working on mitochondria, not for bioenergetics, because that had already been done, right? Or even for biosynthesis of how macromolecules are building. But all this new stuff inspired by that release of cytochrome C, the story I told you that yeah. maybe mitochondria release other things to communicate. And that's what we've been working on for 20 years. But, you know, now their meetings called mitochondria communication, mitochondria <laughs> signaling. You know, 20 years ago, you know, our, our title was mitochondria signaling organelles. and you know, that was sort of like, what? It's not ATP? It's taken us 20 years to convince people that yeah. there's a world beyond ATP that mitochondria do. Um, and, uh, and I think having that niche, mm -hmm. you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be the first person to say something interesting. And, and so I would look around uh, and think of questions that uh, are important for public health and uh, for for biology and uh, as well that not a lot of people are thinking about mm -hmm. right I, I think I just, I think I pointed out the exercise stuff yeah. why is exercise so beneficial yeah right right um, I don't know the answer to that uh, but you know why are why is a ketogenic diet good for neuro uh, pathologies like epilepsy for yeah. example you know and again you can think in the context of a variety of pulmonary diseases the same mm -hmm. thing, right? I mean, you take like um, the, you know, where again had a, one of the worst um, uh, influenza seasons. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, right? I mean, how does, you know, if you put in influenza and metabolism, um, uh, it's not like hundreds of people work on influenza and metabolism, right? People yeah. in the field of influenza don't work on metabolism per se. They mm. work on influenza, controlling innate immunity and adaptive immunity yeah. and epithelial, right? Um, regeneration. Yep. Right? I mean, yeah. um, as you know, um, in the ICU, if your lungs can repair and heal properly after mm -hmm. injury, you get off the vent and you do better. Yeah. If you don't, you stay on the vent and the longer you're on that ventilator, the worse off. That's right. Right? It's so, is there a metabolic component to regeneration? I think the simplest way, this isn't rocket science, I tell people. Think of 
whatever the big questions are, right now I can tell you in the field of alveolar epithelial regeneration, alveolar stem cells, which mm -hmm. is a big deal, uh, how the innate immune system reacts, uh, how the adaptive immune system is suppressed in certain ICU mm -hmm. pathologies, how uh, there is a fibroblast, uh, macrophage, alveolar epithelial crosstalk, yes. that's the basis of pulmonary fibrosis, right? They'd think about it from a metabolism point of view. Take that back. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Enough people are going to do mm -hmm. transcriptional. Lots of people are going to do RNA-seq and chip-seq yeah. and, yeah. and ATAC-seq and all this other right. stuff. And it's, you know, learn about metabolism. A good friend of mine once told me that there is one big challenge with metabolism, and this will be um, my last point um, as a take-home. I don't have this appreciation because I've grown up in metabolism. It's my first language. In fact, molecular biology and everything else is my second, third language. I actually have difficulty sometimes understanding the details of that, and you know this from our <laughs> conversations. Uh, it is still easier for someone who knows metabolism to go and do molecular biology and mm -hmm. genetics, mm -hmm. while it's a lot more difficult for someone who's trained in molecular biology or genetics or cell biology to do metabolism. In part because even someone like me had to learn molecular biology. I learned about RNA polymerase and chromatin modifications mm -hmm. and signal transduction, and, and I trained myself to do metabolism. Great. Most people who learn genetics, molecular biology, which is everybody, they don't always learn metabolism or biochemistry. Right. Some yeah. universities mm -hmm. and graduate school is not even offered as a course. Mm -hmm. And there are not that many people who now are good teachers in that because most of the, the great men and women who taught us are not alive anymore, yeah. right? So there is this gap. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a high barrier entry, entry, barrier entry for metabolism, which scares people, you mm. know? Um, you know, a friend of mine, the same one said, you know, it's easier to go into immunology, which also seems quite daunting, yeah. and, uh, with all its jargon, than to think about metabolism, think about metabolism. you know? And then yeah. the, if you try to combine it, like what we're trying to do now, which is immunometabolism, yeah. uh, that's even more daunting. So I think that scares people off, but you know, Buy my book. It'll teach you how to do it. <laughs> it is a great book. Well, now, thank you so much for, for talking with me and, and demystifying metabolism a bit and, and uh, making some of these really challenging concepts tangible, as you always do. So thank you. Thank you.